0: To the story so far. A podcast series by the Silk Road Institute that explores a broad range of artistic expression by Muslim artists in Canada through the eyes of the artists themselves. From music to literature, film, design, fashion, and more, we invite you on a journey into the minds and creative practices of some of the most talented and inspiring Muslims creating art in this country today. I'm your host, Tenda Cromwell. Fascinating, wide-ranging conversation with award-winning writer Omar Akad. Omar is an Egyptian, Canadian, American journalist and the author of two best-selling novels, American War and What Strange Paradise. In our very first episode of the story so far, Omar joined us from Portland, where he currently resides, to speak about how his childhood informed his writing, the representation of Muslims in the media, the banality of evil present in both of his novels, and more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I appreciated something you said once um, in an interview. You said that childhood is when our most honest encounters with the world take place. So I wanted you to tell me about your childhood and any honest encounters with the world that led you to become the storyteller that you are today.
1: I think of a couple of encounters from my childhood that either directly or indirectly influenced the way I write. The first was when I was about four years old. Uh, my father had to get the hell out of Egypt. The political situation was getting bad and the economic situation was getting bad. And he ended up securing a job offer in Libya, of all places. So we're at the airport. We're getting ready to go. And uh, the way a lot of Arabic names work is that your your middle name is your father's first name and his middle name is his father's and so on and so forth. So my name my name is... Omar Muhammad Al My father's name is Muhammad Ahmad Al A'id. Well, Muhammad Ahmed happens to be one of the most common combinations of names uh, on earth. It turns out there's a guy on the terrorism watch list with the same name. So we end up getting taken into secondary and we miss the flight and eventually the job offer is revoked. A little while later, my father gets um, a job offer in Qatar, of all places, which was just in the sort of early stages of becoming probably the richest place on earth. So I end up growing up there instead of Libya. And everything about my life, um, from this accent you're hearing right now, which is the product of British and American schools, to the way I view the world, to the culture I sort of incorporate into my life, all of that is the result of a coin flip at the airport. It's a result of luck, blind luck. Um, and my memory of that particular encounter, and more so of my parents telling me about that encounter, has influenced the way that a lot of my writing is, um, it turns on on luck. People have things happen to their lives that they have absolutely no control over, and it influences the entire trajectory of their lives. So that's one of those encounters. And of course the other is just the negative space of growing up in a place that isn't yours. You know, I was born in Egypt, but I left when I was five. And so I've been a guest on someone else's land since the age of five, which influences my writing in the sense that ever since I was a kid, I have felt very, very unrooted. I felt anchorless. And I think that's why certainly my two novels, but also a lot of my short stories, the characters have that feeling of not being able to point to one set of stories and say, these are mine. Um, that's something I felt ever since I was a kid,
0: and actually, that leads directly into my next question about this unsettled notion of home that you that I read or I listened to you once describing. You know, as you mentioned, born in Cairo, raised in Doha, Canada, now Portland. You know, as someone with a third culture kid identity, um, with the question of home is not settled for you, which you said is also true of your characters. I want you. You did also say that you've now made fiction a home. So, how do you, though, personally wrestle with the notion of belonging, maybe feelings of alienation and estrangement that also appear so prominently in your your writing?
1: To be perfectly honest, uh, in the most pragmatic sense, I've learned a few tricks, um, and I mean this in the most sort of pathetically individual way possible. I've learned certain things to say or not say when I go through security and when I'm going into the U.S., you know, like that sort of thing. Um, But a lot of that falls under the umbrella of navigating life in this part of the world in particular, um, preemptively correcting for the version of you that appears in someone else's mind, based on whatever aspect of your identity they've decided to um, make the dominant one. So my interactions with people are very, very different, depending on whether the first thing they know about me is my country of birth, or my ethnicity, or my name, or my religion, versus, for example, my accent. If the first thing they know about me is that I sound like this, The kind of person they're expecting and the kind of person I have to correct for and anticipate is very, very different than if the first thing they hear about me is that I'm Muslim. Um, So you learn to navigate life looking for that reflection of you, and whether it's accurate or fraudulent, being able to counteract it in some way or correct for it. and again, that's something my characters are are constantly having to do. Um, particularly in the second novel I wrote, this book called What Strange Paradise. Um, a lot of the characters in that book are preemptively correcting for what they think the West will pick up um of them and of their identity. And it leads to some fairly absurd situations, some fairly tragic situations um but these people are are keenly aware that this is how the world works and so who they actually are is not as important as who are they they are perceived to be um that is something that i definitely have incorporated from from my life experience
0: and that resonates with me so so deeply i'm a black Muslim woman who converted to Islam when I was 18. (laughs) I'm someone who has a a name, a tendency, people often think is Japanese, but it's Zimbabwean. My last name is Cromwell. And so there's all of these these notions or maybe even an absence of understanding. And uh, there's a level of exhaustion in trying to anticipate how people might feel about you too, right? And I, I remember reading an essay you wrote where you talked about becoming aware of, becoming brown in America, and you said what you've pretty much said right now, that before one can make oneself anything in the U.S., one, one must contend, contend with whatever the U.S. makes of him. So then to what extent is the question of home then impacted by your Muslimness and really what is a pervasive structural Islamophobia that it currently exists in the U.S. and the West
1: broadly? I think it 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 functions in a couple of ways. One is, is that you have very little choice but to understand exactly where you are on the spectrum of privilege, which is to say that in terms of what I have to go through with regards to how this country perceives Islam, yeah, I've had my fair share of moments where I thought, oh, this is going horribly, uh, and it's going to go horribly for me because of what this person interprets me to be. But it is nothing compared to a woman who has to wear a hijab um, in in public in America. Uh, because again, it's much, much easier to um, sort of see that human being and immediately discount what is human about them and project onto them whatever it is your interpretation of their religion or misinterpretation of their religion or whatever. Um, So I'm cognizant of of where I am on that spectrum and how I, for example, could move if I grew out my beard a bit more or something like that, or all these things that in the grand scheme of having a faith feel so minor uh, and yet can have such incredible consequences on your day-to-day interactions. Um, The other aspect of it, I think, for me is there's a sense of loneliness, to be honest. Um, you know, I'm not—I'm not a particularly social person. I don't get out of the house that much, and that was pre-COVID. Uh, so you can imagine what my COVID experience was like. I don't, you know, I don't go to do many parties, um, and so I'm not—I'm um, not particularly sort of socially engaged in any community, including the Muslim community, which out here in Oregon is not particularly big to begin with. Right. And so, you know, we just got done with Ramadan, and that was an incredibly lonely experience because back in the old country, you know, you'd walk out at sundown and the stores would just be opening. You know, the Baskin Robbins would be opening its doors, and you knew that you could get ice cream until sunrise because the entire <laughs> right. town is, is doing the same thing. And you understood that when you asked somebody to do something and they said, inshallah, uh, that meant that thing was not going to get done because it's Ramadan and everybody's tired, so like, you know, get used to it. But the idea of, of sort of the society around you engaging in the same ritual—I'm um, not a very communal Muslim. I don't—I should be, but I'm not. But having that around me, I didn't understand how much of an antidote to loneliness that was until I came to Portland— and now I'm running out to the really, really awful 24-hour grocery store, and I'm the only guy in there. And I'm trying to find, you know, these pre-packaged muffins that I'm sort of scarfing <laughs> down before before the Fajr uh, <laughs> prayer starts. Um, and you feel incredibly lonely. Um, I don't I don't miss much about the old country. I miss the people. I miss the warmth and the hospitality. But most of it, I, I certainly don't miss the politics or you know, the governance or the chaos. Uh, but I do miss the sense of, of not feeling like I'm the only person involved in a ritual. Um, right. that, that to me is, is I think, maybe the, the biggest component of trying to navigate life in this country as, as a Muslim who is um, not engaged that much in the local Muslim community or really any other community.
0: What else might you need to create home for you?
1: I do go back quite a bit to the Naguib Mahfouz definition of home. You know, home is, is where it's not a place; it's where your attempts to escape cease. Um, and for me, that's a function of time. It takes me a very long time. I'm a very slow learner in in almost every aspect of my life, including in my relationship with place. You know, my first two years in Montreal, I hated Canada. You know, we just moved from Qatar. We moved on the last day of August in 1998, where the temperature was uh, 50 degrees in the shade. And then three months later, I'm in downtown Montreal. It's minus 40, and I I felt like I was on another planet. It took me years and years to find any kind of sense of place in Canada. And the same is true of Portland. I've now been in Portland eight or nine years, and I'm just starting to think of it as a place where I might be able to one day claim roots Um, so I need time. I need a lot of time in a place. Um, but mostly for me, home is not geographic, it's relational. You know, when I think back of my really formative years, I was in Qatar from age five to age 16, which were some pretty important years as far as sort of growing up. And I don't care in the slightest about Doha as a place. I don't mean that uh, as a criticism. Um, I just mean that when I think back of those to those moments and to those years of my life, the way they manifest in my brain is purely relational. It's here are the friends I had, here are the things we said to each other, here are the things we did, here are the memories I generated as a result. Part of that is because Qatar is the sort of place where um, money is no object. They have so much oil and gas wealth that they don't care in the slightest about the price tag of anything. And so as a result, the Doha I grew up in doesn't exist anymore. You know, I used to, my father was an accountant at what at the time was the only luxury hotel in in Doha, this place called the Sheraton, um, the Doha Sheraton. And now that, pla- that hotel is like the smallest hotel in Qatar <laughs> because they've built all these four seasons and the place where I had my first kiss is now like a giant indoor ski slope or who the hell knows what it is. But, but like the actual geography, geography of the place is unrecognizable to me. So I think that's part and parcel of it. Um, I need relationships and I need time to make, to make home of a place. Um, and uh, the older I get, the more time I need, which is a bit of a paradoxical relationship. But uh, those are the two things that are necessary for me.
0: <laughs> I, I love that. And but when you say that you make fiction a home, how what's what does what does that mean to you in terms of it making like fiction itself being a kind of place making process for you? Is it a place that you, you put, as you said, you put the emotions, the, the, the lack of of connection to a place, the unrootedness. What does that mean to you?
1: It's a fascinating question. I apologize in advance for a very unsatisfactory answer, but um, (laughs) I think it has to do with being able to move the dials such that the story and the text has the same implicit values that I do. I don't necessarily mean moral values. I mean a way of arranging the aspects of the world into a hierarchy. Um, So, for example, when I was very young, um, one of the things that happens in places like Qatar is that if you can afford it, you get the hell out in the summer because it's way too hot to be in a place like Doha in the summer. So, um, after a few years there, we went on a summer vacation to, um, I think it was London and Paris, that's what it was, and we're walking around Paris And the architecture of Paris, if you walk past some of the houses and some of the the streets there, there's little sort of blue squares that have the street number on them. So, you know, if you walk past 25th Main Street or whatever, the 25 will be in this little blue square. It's sort of an architectural aesthetic thing. And I remember walking past these things as a kid and thinking, it's really weird that these people have stolen an architectural trait from downtown Cairo because I'd seen these things all over downtown Cairo and it didn't occur to me in the slightest that it was the other way around that these people had colonized mm-hmm. us and as a result you know some of these some of these architectural you know little bits of flair that I grew up with had had been imported that way it's sort of one of those moments where you realize that um colonialism has met you long before you ever met colonialism sort of thing mm-hmm. um anyway that all of this is to say that as a result of my particular upbringing, there are certain aspects of the world that in reality are very, very important, but for which I have absolutely no request, uh, no respect, um, one of them being the, the boundaries and the sanctity of the nation-state. So one of the first things I do in a lot of my stories, and this is the case with both of my novels, I obliterate geography in that respect. You know, the first thing you see when you pick up American War, which was my first novel, is a map where I've drowned the eastern seaboard of the US, I've given the Southwest back to Mexico, I've done all of this stuff. And you really can only do that in fiction. And so one of the things fiction allows me to do is obliterate the, the notions of the world that as a result of my upbringing have never been particularly sacred to me. Um, I can destroy borders, I can move people around, move things around freely. Um, If you ever talk to one of those sort of Bay Street capitalism bros who talks to you about how the invisible hand will solve everything, I'm like that but for the invisible foot. I'm very much a proponent of the idea that everybody should be able to move freely wherever they want, as utopian or or sort of naive as that may be. I can do that in fiction. So fiction is my arena of retreat to... um, to a place where I can treat the world as it exists in my mind. Um, and that's a very comforting place of retreat.
0: And you know, when I was reading both of your novels, and I also read your short story, Riverbend, what came to mind, and I couldn't immediately think of, of the term, but then I looked it up, it made me think of um, what Hannah Arendt calls the banality of evil. You know, um, yeah. the idea that ordinary that people who commit horrible acts can be ordinary and then she describes this as terrifyingly normal i see that so clearly in your writing um can you tell me sort of your you've talked about this in a different way casual maybe casual cruelty can you talk about your thoughts on this and do you feel that way about the way you've written these novels and some of your short stories
1: yeah i don't I don't know if I've ever been asked about that in particular, but I'm obsessed with the intersection of normalcy and evil i'm I'm obsessed with that because I think there's certain um temptations I have as a writer, particularly when I'm writing um, adjacent to or fully immersed in my own culture, my own identity, my own aspects of my identity. Um, you know, I'm an Arab Muslim guy who grew up on Western culture. You know, when I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, I watched every American action movie that ever came out. Um, I shouldn't have, but I did. Um, and so when I saw someone like me or someone who, who had the same elements of identity as me in those movies, you know, there's, there's effectively three kinds of Muslims in, in Hollywood. You're either the bad Muslim who's a terrorist. You're the good Muslim who helps Jack Bauer catch the terrorist, or you're a fruit and vegetable vendor whose stall gets destroyed in a Matt Damon car chase, like that's sort of the extent of it, right? Um, and when you grow up consuming that, and then you start to create culture, and you know, I'm, I haven't sold millions of copies and I haven't influenced anybody in any direction, but but I do create culture every time I write I write a story. There is a temptation to individually try to counteract what is systemic. Um, you know, so at a systemic level, my people have been portrayed this way. Therefore, I am going to create Muslim characters who are pure as the driven snow. And individually, I'm going to counteract all, of, all that has been done, uh, all the damage that has been done systemically. And that's a horrible idea because those characters end up being flat. They end up having no flavor to them at all. None of us are pure as the driven snow. And so I very deliberately am working on flawed characters. The good guys and the bad guys in my stories are not exclusively good or bad, and, and, and it's a very active thing on my part to try and make them flawed in interesting ways. Um, because I think the alternative is to try to get into a situation that you're never going to win. Um, and I think people who are in the dominant culture never think of this sort of thing. That's right. Whereas, you know, it's, it's sort of on your mind all of the time. Not only the idea of making sure your characters are good enough to counteract all the damage that has been done, but also the sense of um, what I tend to call Atlas Syndrome, which is this idea of, okay, I'm writing about Muslims. Maybe I'm one of the two or three books about Muslims that my publisher will put out this year, as opposed to, you know, a hundred books about middle-aged New England couples going through the ennui of a failing marriage or whatever it is. And so because it's such a limited window, I better describe Every facet of being Muslim, every aspect of it, every, you know, and that again is horrible. Like you, you won't do it. You won't do it well. It'll just be a mess. And so I'm trying my best at all times to not give in to those kinds of temptations. And the result mm-hmm. is that when I describe evil characters, I hope that they're not cartoonishly evil, that they are evil in a way that um, – takes advantage of what society has allowed to be considered normal. So I think, I think that's where that particular um, orientation comes from.
0: You know, and you, to, you mentioned that you don't think your novels have had any impact on someone one way or another. But I was about to ask you if, now that you've published two novels, you know, do you think that it has any impact on perhaps changing narratives? around Muslims and refugees in particular, even if you may not feel as if that was your intention on the onset?
1: When I was younger and I I published my first novel, American War, I was convinced that it was going to have an impact, and not just any impact. I thought, you know, this book's going to come out, and as a result, the West is going to stop bombing brown people. You know, this thing is going to change everything, and, and you know... When you're younger, you, you can delude yourself into this kind of thing. And of course, not only did nothing like that happen, in some cases, the exact opposite happened. You know, I remember a bookseller from Texas wrote a little blurb about American war. And the blurb was something like, you know, this book shows why a second civil war would be bloody and brutal and why we need to have one. And I thought, really, you thought this was a pro-war book? You know, once you let go of these things and they go out into the world, it's sort of like the curling metaphor. You know, you let go of the rock and you, have, you put some, some spin on it and you hope it lands in the right place, but it's out of your hands and you're just watching it go away and who knows what's going to happen. Um, so I've, I've sort of tried to rid myself of the obligation that I change minds in a particular way or that I have some kind of tangible impact, I don't know that fiction works really well with that kind of obligation. Instead, the way I think about it now is in terms of future generations writing about the same thing or writing from a similar place, which in my case is this place of being unanchored and coming from many different places and not having a a set place that is home. And I think of it in terms of You know, the famous Hemingway advice about the short, terse sentences and about not saying about the iceberg principle, you know, you only show one-seventh of what you actually know and all of that good stuff that is the hallmark of MFA programs throughout the West. And that's all well and good if you've had the Victorians shouting on your behalf for a hundred years before you come along. Then you can afford to not say because it's already been said. Whereas if you're writing from a position where your culture or your identity or the things you're talking about have not been considered worthy of inclusion in the canon, you can't afford to not say because the things you don't say will just be unheard. It's not like you're referencing something quietly. There's nothing there in the first place. It has not been considered worthy of inclusion. So the way I think of it now is if I can be some future generations Victorians— where somebody looks back at the work I do and says, wow, that was a lot of shouting. Um, but, you know, as a result, I can be quiet now and I can be subtle about it. That is more than good enough for me. I'll I'll take that any day.
0: And you know what? I actually, I am myself am writing a novel and I'm looking to you as someone who's going to help me in my own journey. So...
1: Oh, God, that's terrifying. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I
0: loved your books. No, it's wonderful. Um, And actually, my next question, I wanted to talk about your process or maybe what you think about in terms of an approach to writing. So the other day, for my own novel, I was trying to write a scene depicting a mosque arson attack. And I was trying to get the sentences to sing and sound poetic, but the horror of what I was writing was so painful and it induced a lot of anxiety for me. And then I'm sure you've probably experienced this in some way, uh, shape or form when writing both of your novels. But it made me think about what this craft and this industry demands of us, especially if it connects in some way to our own identity and what, how we are meant to approach like horror, cruelty, suffering and render it in a way that's palatable and even pleasurable for the reader. Like What, what, are, what is your thought about this and how do you deal with this as you're approaching you know, very, very horrific... Uh, like experiences that your characters are going through.
1: I think a lot to um, something James Baldwin said in an interview with Nikki Giovanni once when they were talking about difficult fiction, difficult topics rendered in literature. It was something to the extent of, yeah, it might hurt you to read it, but it hurt me more to write it. Um, I don't think of that as a as a kind of moral get out of jail free card. It doesn't suddenly rid the writer of the obligation to do it right. But it is something worth keeping in mind, that the construction of these things, particularly when you're dealing with something that's very difficult and that's easier not to talk about, takes a toll. Um, And yes, that's important for the reader to keep in mind, but it's more important for the writer to keep in mind. Um, I know people who've wrecked themselves trying to get at something very, very difficult and not being kind enough to themselves and not being cognizant enough of the toll that this takes. You know, I do a lot of workshops with with students, with writers who are at the beginning of their careers, and, of course, there are the two pieces of age-old advice that every writer gives every other writer. You know, read as much as you can and write as much as you can. But to me, the third load-bearing beam is be kind to yourself. You're going to a difficult place. You're deliberately staring something down that would be so much easier to look away from. Whenever I'm, I'm writing these kinds of scenes or these kinds of books or passages or whatever the scale may be, I try to remember that and I also try to be very, very clear with myself on why I'm doing this. So, whenever I start a project, a long form project, I create something called a y file, and the y file is just a word document that has two questions in it: What are you trying to do and why and Until I have two really good answers to both those questions, particularly the second one, I don't consider the project viable now I'm one of those very lazy writers who will say that any writer can write about any topic you know i don't i don't i don't uh, I'm not particularly um orthodox about that sort of thing. But I should feel like you had a really good reason for why you're writing about this particular topic. As long as that comes through, then I'm okay with it. And I'll I'll take that ride, no matter how painful it is, with with the writer. Um, So I do a lot of work before the work on just sitting down and, and being very clear with myself about why I'm going to this particular place. Um and you can tell really early on if the reason's not good enough, in which case you just turn around and walk away. And the fact that you don't turn around and walk away means that it's worth doing. And that will sustain you, I think, through through some of the the darker parts of, of this kind of work.
0: You know, as a fellow storyteller, I I never need to ask a writer why they write or what keeps them, say, tethered to fiction or any other form of storytelling. But I think it would be worth it to explore that for the audience because, you know, not only the subject matters that you're dealing with induce a great deal of, you know, anxiety and, and, and some degree of suffering. Also, the writing process is a process of acquainting yourself with self-loathing. <laughs> There's so much self-hate. Nobody talks about it. I hate, I hate myself every time I try to write a sentence. <laughs> but then what keeps you tethered to fiction? Like if it's there's so much of this involved in it,
1: I'm glad I'm not the only one because that is the entirety of the process. Entire for process me is uh, <laughs> right. Like this never, never goes away. It never, never. goes away. Um, I mean, there's a famous Thomas Mann quote, right? I think it was Thomas Mann about a writer is someone for whom writing is more difficult than it is for other people, <laughs> and that's pretty well the definition of the writer for you. Um, so you know, I, I I've I've come to terms with the with the reality that that's never going away. On a practical level, I'm not good at anything else. I'm a halfway good writer. I'm useless at virtually everything else. Um. And I know that this is probably what I should be doing with my life because I come back to it even when it kicks my ass. You know, a few years ago I tried to learn guitar. I bought a guitar. I took a couple of lessons. It was difficult. I quit immediately. Um, but writing, no matter how much it beats me up, I come yes. back to it. And so I know that there must be something there in the way of a relationship. Um, I don't feel good when I'm writing. I feel very, very good about having written. Yes. When I'm on the other side of it, it feels—I feel a sense of self-worth that I derive from virtually no other facet of my life. Um So I'm willing to put up with the, um, as you describe it, the self-loathing, which really I don't think that there's a more accurate term, to be perfectly honest. Um, I'm willing to put up with the self-loathing of the act to get the catharsis on the other side of the act. Um, I have thought a little bit about why it is so difficult. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that for the entirety of our lives as writers— Our taste outstrips our talent. We know what we like in fiction better than we know how to write. And so, in a sense, subconsciously, I'm always chasing my heroes in that regard, knowing full well I'll never be Dostoevsky, I'll never be Nagi Mahfouz, I'll never be, you know, Toni Morrison. I'm never going to touch these folks. But my taste is more developed than my talent and always will be. And that, I think, contributes to some of the sense of inadequacy when you put words down on paper. The other part of it for me is that when I'm reading anybody else, I don't start inside their brain. I start with the page. And because I haven't seen the origin point of the writing, there's an element of inherent surprise and delight that's always going to be in the work that's never going to be in my own work because I've seen the starting point. I start my own writing inside my brain. I've seen where it begins. So it's much, much harder to surprise myself. And as a result, delight myself by my own writing. So all of these other writers have a, have a leg up on me. And I need to remember that when I'm writing my own work. Because it's much more difficult to take the same kind of delight in your own work when you've seen what it could be in your head versus how it actually ended up on the page. And so I try to be kind to myself knowing that. And those things help a little bit, but it's... um. It's not an antidote. It's, it's sort of a little, it makes it a little bit easier, but not much.
0: <laughs> you made me think of, I think it was Arundhati Roy talked about, I'm probably going to misquote it, something like to the effect of the euphoria of being able to bridge the gap between thought and expression. And, I, and I, it just stuck with me when she said something to that effect. And you, you almost never achieve it, but you're, it's always an approximation, right? It's always you're getting close to it. And when it's good enough, you stop,
1: (laughs) essentially. That's exactly it. That's exactly it.
0: (laughs) I have one final question. I think you're going to love it, actually. Um, (laughs) You know, you seem to write a lot about what haunts you, you know, displacement, dispossession, public apathy, tyranny, violence, unfolding climate crisis. I'm very curious now about what nourishes you, what brings you joy. I was really happy to see that you built your own rock climbing situation in your house and you also live in the woods, which is a dream. So tell me what makes you joy and what nourishes you.
1: Now, situation is exactly the correct way to describe what's going on in my garage right now. I didn't know the real name of it, a rock climbing wall. Is that what it's called? No, soon-to-be yeah. incident, I think, maybe. A currently <laughs> situation, soon-to-be incident. Um, I had not so much as built a birdhouse before I decided to build this thing. We were in the middle of the pandemic. I hadn't left, that, left the house in months. Or no, that's not true. You went to the grocery store or the pharmacy and stuff, but I hadn't seen friends or, you know, done anything remotely enjoyable right. in months. And I was losing my mind, and I thought, you know mm-hmm. what, I'm going to do this. And to give you a sense of how incompetent... I was at the whole situation. At one point, I had to Google the phrase, how to connect two pieces of wood. Like I didn't even know the correct way to phrase the sentence, um, and Google was just as baffled as I was. It was like, what do you mean connect two pieces of wood? Like have you heard of a nail, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so this rickety-ass thing that's in my garage that I w- I'm i afraid to let my kids use, I mean I'll use it, but it's sort of, um, it's a bit of a death trap basically. Uh, yeah, rock climbing is is sort of the only exercise I get. It's great if you want giant forearms and pretty well useless for everything else. Like I get winded running around the block, but I I have I have really strong forearms. <laughs> um, I obviously I read a lot. Um, I enjoy uh, trashy culture of all kinds, um, you know, horribly obscure reality TV shows and and that sort of thing i I used to write comedy uh, a long time ago, which comes as a real shock to people who've read my my more recent work, um, which is pretty well the exact opposite of comedy. But um I recently got back into it a little bit. i wrote I wrote a piece for a short story anthology. Um, that was the first time I'd written comedy in a long time. It was this incredibly juvenile, stupid piece written in the form of six radio commercials for a bidet company um, as the world was falling apart, as the apocalypse <laughs> were coming, and they were still trying to sell bidets no matter how much the world burned. The <laughs> can I read thing. that?
0: <laughs> I want to read it. Well, the weird Where thing
1: about it, it it's, it's in this anthology called Small Odysseys, which is, uh, this is a group called Selected Shorts in, in New York, and they, every year they, they commission short stories, and they have professional actors read them out loud to a theater audience. And I thought, oh, this would be funny, you know, the actor will have a hard time keeping a straight face. But then they decided to publish all of this in an anthology, and they commissioned a musical number to go along with the story I'd given them, and the whole thing just careened out of control. And the biggest problem was that virtually every other writer that they had asked was some kind of Pulitzer Prize winner or like MacArthur Grant recipient who'd written like incredibly serious, depressing stories. And then there was my thing sticking out like a sore thumb in the middle of all of this. And I loved it. It was like, it was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever been a part of. But um, I take joy in that kind of absurdity. And I try to infuse that in my life whenever I can.
0: I love it. Well, thank you so much, Omar. This was a a really great conversation. I really appreciate the time you took to, to share all of this with me. It
1: was my pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. The story so far
0: is a Silk Road Institute production and was funded by the Canada Council for the Arts Digital Now Grant. We acknowledge that the Silk Road Institute operates on the traditional territory of the Kahaga, presently known as Montreal. These are unceded Indigenous lands and a place which has long served as a meeting and exchange among many First Nations, including the Kahaga of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, Huron-Wendat, Abenaki, and Anishinaabe, We recognize and respect the Kahaga as the traditional custodians of these lands. The show was produced and researched by Asan Mogul, script writing and editing by Anam Shah, additional script editing by yours truly, Tendisai Cromwell, the executive producer and creative director is Mohamed Shaheen, music by Suad Bushnak, marketing and communications by Nawal Saleem, sound editing and mixing by Mark Knox at New Sound Productions, Graphic design work by Hamza Ali. Special thanks to Silk Road Institute's Programs and Development Manager, Miriam Zaidi. For all of our episodes and to support Silk Road's future programming, visit silkroadinstitute.ca. I'm your host, Tenda saik Thanks for listening.